Welcome back, everybody, to the Thinking Talmudist podcast. It is so wonderful to have our live audience here at the Torch Center. We appreciate it. Thank you to our guests who came back from, from Miami, our vacationers. And uh, welcome to everyone else, all the fellow Houstonians, and all of those online. Thank you for joining us live online at torchzoom.com. We are continuing the Talmud that talks about Hanukkah. We are on page 23a in Tractate Shabbat. The Talmud now is going to discuss what is the most important part of the menorah, the placement or the lighting? Which one is our higher priority? So the, the Gemara says, Toshma, come learn a proof that kindling the menorah is the primary. The Amr Rabbi Yishor ben Levi, Rabbi Yishor ben Levi said, Ashoshis shahoysa dolekes vaholeches kol hayom kulo. In a case of a glass lantern that was continuously burning the entire Shabbos day, Shabbos. So now someone lit this Friday night for a Hanukkah light, and it stayed lit the entire Shabbos day. And now comes Lamotzoy Shabbos. What happened Saturday night? What do you do? Do you light another candle, or do you just keep that one there because it's the Hanukkah light? On the night following the Shabbos. One should extinguish the lantern's flame and then rekindle it, in order to fulfill the Hanukkah mitzvah for Saturday night. Now, if you hold that the lighting is the mitzvah, then this is perfect. But if you say that placement accomplishes fulfillment of the commandment, this ruling that he should extinguish the lantern and rekindle it is incorrect. Because if the point is that it should just be placed in a specific place, you don't have to relight it, just leave it there. But if it's that you need to light it and that is the mitzvah, that lighting the menorah, the action of lighting it is the actual mitzvah, then it makes sense. You have to extinguish it and rekindle it. So that's the question. She says, He says, Rabbi Yeshua should have said, he should extinguish the lantern, lift it up, put it down, and then rekindle it. So the fact that he didn't say that, this indicates that kindling constitutes the primary mitzvah act. So what is the primary mitzvah? Is it the placement or is it the lighting? So according to this opinion, it is lighting it, because if not, the rabbi would have said that you should extinguish it, lift it up and put it down again. So now it's, you did the, the act of placement. We know that the placement is important, but it's not the primary act of lighting menorah. It's about lighting it. The Gemara offers another proof of the above. The ode, and furthermore, Midka umavor Since we bless just prior to performing the mitzvah, Asher kedishanu b'mitzvosavitzivanu lehadlik ner shalchanaka. What is the blessing that we recite on lighting the menorah? Thank you, Hashem, Creator of the world, who has sanctified us with His commandments and has commanded us to kindle the Hanukkah light. It is obvious that the rabbis who authored the blessing viewed the kindling as the essential mitzvah act. 
From here we derive that the bless uh, from the blessing that kindling the Hanukkah lights chiefly accomplishes fulfillment of the commandment. Shmamina indeed derive from that statement from that teaching that the most important part of the mitzvah is lighting the menorah. Lighting the menorah. That's the most important part. The Gemara derives a practical law from this conclusion. And now that we have learned that kindling accomplishes the fulfillment of the commandment, if a deaf, mute, insane person or minor kindled the Hanukkah light, so we know that a deaf, mute, or someone who is not sane, or someone who is a minor, we know that their mitzvahs, they're not obligated in mitzvahs because they don't have clarity of mind. They don't have the ability to function as a normal human being would. So they don't accomplish anything by, by, by doing the act, whatever the act of whatever mitzvah it is, they're not obligated to it. So loas of loklum, he has accomplished absolutely nothing in as much as kindling is the primary mitzvah act and his actions have no legal significance. However, a woman may certainly kindle the Hanukkah light. We know that women are only obligated, they're not obligated to time-bound mitzvahs, like tefillin. Women is not obligated to tefillin because tefillin are only obligated during the daytime. So only when time triggers a mitzvah, a woman is not obligated to that. The only exception to that is Shabbos. And my brother, by the way, yesterday made such a beautiful distinction between the Shabbos candles and the menorah candles. Like he, he talked about several of the distinctions. The menorah we light outside, the, the, the Shabbos light we light inside. When the menorah we're not allowed to derive any pleasure from, the Shabbos light we're supposed to derive pleasure from. The Shabbos light we light before sundown. The, the menorah light we light after sundown. And he's brought all of these distinctions. I thought it was really beautiful. So what do you see? So what do we learn here about women, right? That women are typically not obligated, but if they light the, the Hanukkah light, that is uh, that is fine. The Amr Rabbi Shulman Levi and Rabbi Shulman Levi said, "Nashim Chayavas Bener Hanukkah." The women are obligated in the mitzvah of kindling the, the Hanukkah light. Sheaf Hain Hayu Ba'osahanes, for they too were involved in that miracle. So the halacha actually says, and next week, Thursday, God willing, if Hashem succeeds my way next week on Thursday in the morning class that we have the thirty mo- Thursday morning, 10 o'clock a.m. Torah talk. We're going to do the laws of Hanukkah. One class, all the laws of Hanukkah. I'm really excited about that. Hashem, please bless me. I look forward to preparing all of those notes down to one piece of paper. Even though this is a positive commandment, that time causes, mitzvah sasei man grama, it's a time-bound mitzvah, like lighting the menorah, and women are generally exempt from performing such mitzvahs, even those that are of rabbinic origin, a woman may candle for all the members of her household, the menorah. Okay, Jewish women were uniquely affected by the oppression since the Greeks decreed that every virgin bride must first submit to the local Greek commander. Hence, they too were saved by the Hanukkah miracle. Furthermore, a woman actually served as an instrument of the miraculous deliverance for Yehudas, the daughter of Yochanan, the Kohen Gadol, 
fed the Greek general cheese to increase his thirst and then gave him wine to drink until he became inebriated. She then cut off his head and this sight caused the enemy soldiers to flee and that ended the entire battle. So we see that the deliverance came through this incredible woman, Yehudis, the daughter of Yochanan, Judith, the daughter of Yochanan, the Kohen Gadol. And therefore, it's a special mitzvah for women to observe Hanukkah. Now, very interesting, the halacha also says that a woman should not do any labor within 30 minutes of the candle lighting time. Why? Because she can be busy with a lot of different things, running her business, she could be busy feeding her children, she could be busy taking care of anything else in her life and get carried away and then forget to light the menorah. So that obligation is in general that before you do a mitzvah, you should clear your mind of all things. Hanukkah, which is such a special mitzvah, is a special opportunity for us to really clarify our thoughts, to clarify and purify our heart so we can allow the light of the menorah into our lives. The Gemara discusses the laws of a guest. What does a guest do when it comes to Hanukkah? You're a guest in someone's house. Do you light a menorah there? Do you not light a menorah there? What, what is the law? Amar Rav Sheshes, Rav Sheshes said, Achsanai, Chayev Bener Hanukkah. A guest is obligated in the mitzvah of kindling the Hanukkah light. Amar Rav Zera, in elaboration of this, Rav Zera stated, Initially, when I was a student in the academy and boarded in someone's house, I participated with my host in the mitzvah by paying him a few small coins towards the cost of the Hanukkah lights. So now I'm a partner with him in that mitzvah. However, after I married my wife, I said, Now I am certainly not required to contribute a few coins towards the purchase of the Hanukkah lights. Since they are kindling lights for me in my house. In his house, they were lighting candles. His family was lighting. So even if he was traveling, he did not need to participate in his hosts. When he was traveling, he didn't have to participate in his hosts' candles because back at home, they were lighting for him, even though he wasn't there. So this is an entire discussion in halacha of whether or not someone can just have you in mind. Is that okay? Halacha says, and we're going to learn about this on Thursday, God willing, the halacha says that even if someone arrives home late from a trip, you go traveling and you come back on Hanukkah night, any of the nights of Hanukkah, at 11 o'clock, you got to light the menorah. It means the obligation is on the person and it doesn't make a difference if you, it's after the time that it typically should be lit. The obligation is to light the menorah. Well, there is a time and the time is... at. Uh, the time is when people are leaving the marketplace, which is typically as it gets dark, is when people are traveling home. Uh, the, the time is about, the proper time is about 13 and a half minutes after sunset. Mm-hmm. Shabbos always before. Shabbos, you're not allowed to light candles on Shabbos. So you light Shabbos candles before sunset. Because once it's Shabbos, it's Shabbos can't light the other candles. So what we do is, even though you have to light the Hanukkah menorah generally after sunset, 
The only exception to that is Shabbos, where we light it before we light the Shabbos candles, and then we light the Shabbos candles and uh, make sure you have enough oil so that it can last till a half hour after you get home from shul, which today the, the, the cups of oil that we have or the candles usually burn for like two hours or, or three hours, sometimes ten hours. The husband, the husband, he's obligated to every mitzvah. She's not obligated to every, every mitzvah, particularly time-bound. Now, if there's nobody there to light, then she's obligated to light. So if the husband and wife are there, he should light and he should fulfill her obligation. You have to understand, he's commanded. You're not commanded to fulfill that mitzvah. So therefore, because he's commanded, he can fulfill your obligation because you're not obligated to that mitzvah. You can fulfill his obligation. It makes sense. Let's continue. So where we left off here was that if someone is having the menorah lit on their behalf when they're traveling, we see here that Rav Sheshes didn't require lighting again when he was away from his family because someone was lighting for him back home. The Gemara discusses now which oils may be used for the mitzvah of kindling the Hanukkah lights. So what are we allowed to use to light said, All oils are appropriate for the Hanukkah light, even inferior oils which do not draw well, and wicks which do not hold the flame well are appropriate, all of them. Since the halacha accords with Rav, who said earlier that a prematurely extinguished Hanukkah light need not be rekindled. So we see that you don't need to have the premium oil and the premium wicks for lighting the menorah. Any oil does it. But olive oil is the choicest. That is the best oil to use for the menorah. Omar Abaya, an elaboration of this, Abaya stated, Initially, Master Rabbi Bar Nachmani would go looking for sesame seed oil. Amar hai moshach nehoire tfei. Explaining this type of oil prolongs the lighting more than the others. Kivan deshamalei lahad Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, once he heard the statement from Yeshua ben Levi that we just mentioned, that you can use any oil, mahadar amishcha dezesa, he went looking only for olive oil. Amar hai tzlil nehoire tfei explaining that this other type of oil produces a clearer and brighter light. So the best light is olive oil. Another statement about the superiority of olive oil, which is very interesting. We have, you know what our sages tell us, why in the world do we have a commandment to light the menorah with olive oil? Of all things, olive oil? Why olive oil? Because olives... In order to get the oil, you have to smash the olives. And that's when you get the prime, the best, the virgin, the first squeeze of that of that olive comes the best oil. Sages tell us that's a parable to the Jewish people. The Jewish people, when do they produce the best? When they're, when they're crushed, when they're squeezed, when they're in exile. When they're free and everything is going fine, they lazy out of things. They're too comfortable. 
when they become fat, they start rebelling. It's a reminder. I don't use wax candles. My children do. My menorah is made for the glass, the glass uh, things, not for the not for the, for the candles. No, you, no, you don't. You don't need to use the shamas for. That's what it was meant for. It was meant to be the one that you use to light. But there's another reason we have a shamas is that if, in case you used some of the light of the menorah, then it's the light of the shamas that you use, not the light of the other candles. Because you're not allowed to use the light of the candles. So if you were passing by and you were looking for something and you're like, "Uh oh, I just used the light of the menorah to look for my whatever it was," we 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 say that because the light of the shamish is assisting, it's part of that light. Then we're not we're not using of the regular Hanukkah uh, lights. Great questions here. The Talmud now continues and brings another statement of the superiority of olive oil. The Amr of Yeshua ben Levi, Yeshua ben Levi also said, Kol lidyo. All oils are appropriate for the production of black ink. But olive oil is the choicest. The Gemara asks, They inquired, Does he mean that it is preferable to use olive oil to knead the soot or to smoke the glass vessel? In order to produce the ink's blackness, the glass vessel was exposed to the smoke of burning oil. This accumulated soot on the vessel's walls and then scraped off, mixed with a little oil, and kneaded. The substance was then left to dry in the sun, after which it was dissolved in the ink solution. The Gemara here inquires whether the olive oil is the oil of choice for creating the soot or for using in the kneading of the color. The Gemara says, Tashma, come learn. Learn a proof that it is the preferred oil for both procedures. Itani Rav Shmuel Bar Zutra, Rav Shmuel Bar Zutra taught a brisa that expressly says so, Kol all oils are appropriate for the production of black ink, but olive oil is the choicest, both to knead the soot and to smoke the glass vessel. So for both of them, the olive oil is the, is the best. Gemara now brings another Amoro with a similar name that taught a different version of the Brisa, but the same, same conclusion. Rav Shmuel Barzutra Masni Hachrab Barzutra taught the Brisa thus. Now here's the question, just a side note, a sidebar. If it's saying the same thing, why do we need to quote it? It's ultimately going to say the same thing that we said previously. Why are we saying it again? Why is the Talmud waste? Exactly. Source. The source is the most important thing. We have to know. Yeah, we're going to have every single source. Exactly. Who said it? What they said. All smoke generating oils are appropriate for the production of black ink. But olive oil is the choicest. A statement about the superiority of a different ingredient of ink. Amarav Huna, Rav Huna said, call Hasarofin Yafin Ladyo, all gums, saps of a tree are appropriate for the production of black ink. Usrof Ktaf Yafemikulam. And blackthorn gum is the best of all. 
Okay, that's just another Gemara that says what we knew till now, and then we have the opinion opinion of Rav Huna. Now the Gemara discusses the blessings that accompany the mitzvah of the Hanukkah lights. So we know we say the blessing like we just mentioned previously, Asher Kedishonu B'Mitzvosa V'Tzivonu L'Hadlik Ner Shel Hanukkah. On Shabbos we say, Asher Kedishonu B'Mitzvosa V'Tzivonu L'Hadlik Ner Shel Shabbos. That God sanctified us with his mitzvahs, mitzvahs and commanded us to light the Shabbos candles, and God sanctified us with the mitzvahs and sanctified us to light the Hanukkah menorah, the Hanukkah candle. So Amar Rav Chia Barashi said in the name of Rav, One who kindles the Hanukkah light must utter a blessing. Rav Yirmiyah said, The one who sees a burning Hanukkah light must utter a blessing. The Gemara elaborates. Amar Rav Yehuda. Rav Yehuda said, Yom Rishon On the first day of Hanukkah, the one who sees a Hanukkah candle, Hanukkah light, recites two blessings. Umadlik Mivarach Shalash, the one who actually kindles a menorah, recites three blessings. Mikan ve'elech madlik mivarach shtaim v'roe mivarach echad. Henceforth, from that point on, after the first night of Hanukkah, one who kindles utters two blessings, and one who sees utters one blessing. The Gemara asks, when one kindles the Hanukkah candle on the subsequent nights, which of the three blessings does he delete? The Gemara answers, he deletes the third blessing, the one which thanks God for this season, which is Shehechianu. Very good, very good. Shehechianu. So Shehechianu, that God brought us to this point. The Gemara challenges this reply, but let us instead delete the second blessing, the one that thanks God for the miracle for our forefathers. The challenge is deflected, because the miracle occurred on each of the eight days. And so it is appropriate to pronounce the second blessing on all eight nights of Hanukkah. But as for the third blessing, God brings us, brings us to the beginning of the Hanukkah season only once on the first day. Hence, we pronounce the third blessing only at that time. So the first night of Hanukkah, we will recite three blessings. Asher Kiddishanu B'Mitzvosavitzvanu L'Hadlik Ner Hanukkah. Then we say, that God performed miracles for our ancestors at that time. And then we have the special blessing that we recite only on the first night, which is, Thank you, God, for bringing us and giving us life to experience this mitzvah. Yes. Right. So the, the truth is like this. The truth is that we'll see the halacha, and the halacha actually does not require one to recite a blessing upon seeing a menorah. Only by lighting. Only when you light a menorah. Correct. The Gemara scrutinizes the text of the first blessing. My mevarach, what is the blessing that one utters when performing the mitzvah? Mevarach asher kedishanu b'mitzvosa v'tzivanu l'hadlik ner shel Hanukkah. He blesses, blessed are you, Hashem, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to kindle the Hanukkah light. Ve'hechon tzivanu. But where in the Torah did he command us? The mitzvah of the Hanukkah lights is a rabbinic in origin. Beautiful, that's what the Talmud tells us. 
The Talmud now says, Amaraim argue over which verse provides the biblical connection to this mitzvah. Okay, because it's a question that we're all thinking. Asher kidishanu, that God commanded us. What do you mean God commanded us? There's no, no source in the Torah to light a Hanukkah menorah. The only source we have is of rabbinic nature. The holiday didn't happen until a thousand years later. The miracle didn't happen until a thousand years later. So the Gemara says like this, Rav Avya Omar Milo Sosu. Rav Avya says that the justification of stating and Hashem has commanded us to kindle the Hanukkah light derives from the verse, you shall not deviate from the word that they, the rabbis, will teach you. Rav Nechemia, Rav Nechemia says, however, that the source is, Sha'al avicha v'yagedcha zekeinecha v'yomrulach. Ask your father, and he will tell you, your elders, and they will say to you. In validating the statement of our blessing, and Hashem has commanded us for that formulation, the Gemara placed has rabbinic mitzvos on par with biblical mitzvos, which would imply that just as blessings are invariably pronounced over the latter, so they are invariably pronounced over the former. The Gemara now challenges this notion. Mosiv Rav Amram, Rav Amram retorted from the evidence of a Mishnah. Hadamai, with regards to Demai, quick summary of what Demai is. Demai is produce of the land of Israel obtained for an unlearned person. By rabbinic enactment, such produce must be tithed since it is uncertain whether the supplier did so. So if someone gives you fruit from the land of Israel, which is a big thing, you have to make sure that the produce from the land of Israel must be tithed. My grandmother would sit there in the kitchen and cut off from every fruit and vegetable that she bought and would do the blessing on the tithing. Trumas and Maestros, you have to do it. Because she's unsure if the store keeper did that. She's unsure if the producer did that. So she, in her own home. But that's only produce that comes from the land of Israel. We don't have to do that for avocados that come from Mexico. You know what I'm saying? Right, she would throw it out. She would throw it out. That, that doesn't belong to us. That's Hashem's. So with regards to Demai, now we know what Demai is. It's that portion of, the, of, of your produce that needs to be taken off, uh, taken uh, tithed. They need to be tithed. Me'arvinbo, you we may make an Eruv with it. What is an Eruv? Eruv Chatzeros is the communal courtyard with regard to Shabbos. So what happens is, is you need to take two items and put them aside for the communal meal that you're going to have. Let me just, so that you understand exactly what this is. How do me and you who live in the same neighborhood make our our properties, a combined domain. Right. So we have to, like we eat, we're sharing in food together. It's showing our our friendship and our love for one another. And now we're a community. We're one. So if you go to the shul, Young Israel, for example, here in Houston, you will find that there is a box of matzahs and some food that is, this is the communal food that brings about the entire community to become one entity so to speak. So now, are you allowed to use demai food, which needs tithing, for the communal food? 
Well, we'll see. Over here he says, yes, we may make Erevin with it. And we may make Shitufei Mavos with it. We can make the, the domains, one domain with this food. And we may utter Hamotzi blessing over it and formally invite others to join in the recitation of grace after meals over it as well. And a person may separate its tithes while he is unclothed and even during twilight on Friday. What does this mean? Let's see. So we're going to use this to permit carrying from a courtyard to a commonly to a common alley on the Shabbos or joining the uh, the properties together. And this implies that one does not pronounce a blessing over the act of separating tithes for Demai. Why? Because he can do so unclothed. We can't recite a blessing when one is unclothed. By the fact that we're saying that you can separate the tithe unclothed means that you don't recite a blessing. So now the Gemara says, Rav Amram now articulates this question. The E Amris call me the Now, if you tell me that every performance of a rabbinic commandment requires a blessing, uh, don't we see here? He says here, when he stands unclothed and separates the Demai tithes, how can he utter a blessing? Don't we have a requirement to abide by the admonishment and your camp shall be holy so that God will not see a naked thing among you? And such is not the case. Right? Because in our case here, he's unclothed. And if he's unclothed, he can't recite the blessing. So what, what are we learning from this? We see that there's no blessing. So what are you telling me that on every rabbinic mitzvah, you have a blessing? We have proof here that you don't have a blessing. Very simple. This is a great question. The Gemara replies by distinguishing between rabbinic commandments. There are different types of rabbinic commandments. Amar Abayah said, The performance of definite rabbinic precepts requires a blessing. Whereas the performance of rabbinic precepts in a case of doubt does not require a blessing. Thus, one does not pronounce a blessing over the separation of tithes for, from Demai. Why? Because why is he obligated to tithe? Because we're unsure, we're uncertain whether or not it was given a tithe. It's not guaranteed. Okay, Demai food, by definition, is food that is in doubt whether or not the tithe was given. So we're only giving it out of doubt. We're not giving it because we're certain it wasn't given. We don't know. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Because you have a situation of doubt, it's the only reason you're giving it. And therefore, you're not obligated in a blessing. But otherwise, a regular tithe, you would require a blessing. Right? Excellent. All on the same page. So that's why you have today rabbinic supervision for that, to ensure. And there's every single grocery store in Israel that's worth a grain of salt will have a certification that all of their produce has been tithed by a rabbi who comes in there and he'll do the tithe and have everyone in mind and that's done.
So, and it'll be certified. What's that? It doesn't, but you want people to trust you. So like this, you have a an extra verification. Because you can tell me all day, I can tell you all day that I tithed. Maybe I did, but maybe I didn't. Right, but you always need to have an extra an extra set of eyes, an extra pair of eyes to ensure that, you know, because particularly when it comes to the food industry, you got to make a sale. So you'll do whatever it takes to make a sale. And if someone could be tempted, the Yetzirah can be very strong to make another sale. You know what? Someone wants to buy now for fruits and vegetables for a salad or for whatever it is, going to sell them at whatever I have left. Oh, was it tithed? Yeah, sure it was tithed. And we can be we can be tempted by that by that need for uh, for a livelihood. So he says the Gemara challenges this explanation. yom tov sheni. But here, in the case of the second festival day, the Suffolk devarehem who ubai bracha, which is a rabbinic precept in the case of doubt, and yet it requires a blessing. So we do have a blessing for the second day of yom tov, which is a rabbinic decree, and it's only because of a doubt. By responds, Hosam Kihechi Dulizilzulebe. Says the reason why there's listen to this, the reason why there's a special blessing for the second day of holiday is so that people do not treat the rabbinically mandated festival day with disrespect. Ordinarily, however, rabbinic precepts in cases of doubt do not require a blessing. Rava offers a different explanation. Rava says, Rava Omar. Rov ame ha'aretz me'asrin hein. Rava says, in truth, rabbinic precepts in cases of doubt do require a blessing. However, the obligation to tithe demai is not even a rabbinic precept in a case of doubt. Rather, it is merely a rabbinic stringency. Why? Since most unlearned people do tithe their produce, it is for this reason that tithing demai requires no blessing. Because it's not a case of doubt. It's not a case of doubt. We we assume that um, everyone did, and therefore it's not you're not obligated in tithing at all in such a case because we trust that they did it. All right, my dear friends, have an amazing Shabbos. Thank you for another great piece of Talmud. Have a wonderful Shabbos, everybody. Thank you, thank you. Have a great Shabbos. Shabbat Shalom, everybody.